as the retreat comes towards the close. I'm sure you're aware of how close we've all become, even in the silence, without speaking really to each other all that much. But out of our common interest and our common purpose and our common understanding, we have created this community, Sangha. And maybe one of the most noticeable effects, really, of the end of the retreat as we begin to come out into our own little worlds is the dissolution of this communal feeling that we have and that we, that we notice. And the structure of a retreat like this, the silence, the schedule, the reminders, the seclusion from, I mean, just the physical seclusion from what's out there, really allows us to feel that bond and the thread of connection with each other through the Dharma. In the opening of talking, the opening to our personalities and sharing them with one another, there's a real loss in, 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 the, in the loss of the silence. And we feel that. You know, something very precious has been created here out of our intention and practice. And when we begin speaking again, um, the silence goes. And the loss of the silence is something that we feel pretty intensely. But along with the loss of the silence is really when we begin talking, the focus of our attention, the Dharma, the truth, the moment, starts dissipating into all those worldly things that we each are concerned about, and rightly so. And it's this dissolution of focus, or the dissolution of the the oneness of our efforts and attention that really um, we begin to sense our aloneness again. We'll see in a couple days when we begin talking how difficult it is to communicate accurately to really speak in such a way as to convey your heart to another and have them hear it is really difficult to do. 
for the most part, while we're here, we've been really working most intensively with two of the Eightfold Paths training, the training in Samadhi, or calming the mind down, and the training in Panya, wisdom, seeing things as they are. With the breaking of silence, we'll begin and we'll have the opportunity to really work as intensively with sila, the, the training in living in harmony and community. And more specifically, it's the working with right speech that is going to be the practice, really, for the next four or five days when we break silence. So the final exam of the retreat, the single question of the final exam is, can we remain mindful in the give and take of our social life while talking? I want to speak about some of the conditions of right speech because so much of our life outside of retreat is speaking. And we have this opportunity over the next few days of really practicing right speech or seeing our speaking as a practice. Better than a thousand hollow words is a single word that brings peace, the Buddha said. Can we find a way to speak the understanding, the peace, um, the sensitivity, the care that we have felt in our openness and our stillness? Is there a way that we can value and articulate that one another? There's a poem that I really love by William Stafford about speaking, and I want to read it to you. It's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, the pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, 
No. Or maybe. Should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. William Stafford. Words have power. What we say does really matter. The karmic consequences or results of what we say will be felt both immediately and far into the future. Therefore, we should Consider carefully the signals we give when we speak. We speak for many reasons. Sometimes loneliness compels us to seek companionship. Sometimes we feel ill at ease with silence. Sometimes our emotions, excitement, anger, Rage, love, fear, demand to be shared. And the, who am I? What do I want? What do I believe? Is always erupting into our speech. The effect of what we say also is extraordinarily varied. We can inform, entice, connect, share, help. We can impress, deceive, belittle, shame, humiliate. It helps in speaking to really consider what it is you want from your speaking. You want to be right? You want to be loved? Are you seeking to impress? Why do we speak? It's difficult. I'm sure you may have noticed, even in trying to write a single note to put on the board or to a teacher here, what to say, how to how to say what you want to say without extra, clearly. Extraordinarily difficult. Our motivations are often unclear. We're not sure what we want. We're not sure what's motivating us. Sometimes they're conflicted, not just unknown. If, however, we pay attention to our intentions, we have less likelihood of regret, remorse, guilt, shame. But it's by paying careful attention to the effect of our speaking that we truly begin to use speaking as a practice. So the Buddha offered some simple guidelines. And like all of the Buddha's simple instructions, Easy to understand, hard to do, or write speech, or speaking in such a way as to um, 
promote understanding, harmony, connection. One of the first conditions is to speak with a friendly heart. When you speak, to speak from a place of metta, of karuna. Even if what you have to say is difficult, hard to hear. When we acknowledge to ourselves our connection with the listener, or our love of them, our appreciation of them, then we affirm our understanding of connection, interconnection, and we we acknowledge to ourselves that this person is in my life. I will be living with this person after what I say. Speaking in a way that honors or maintains your connection, that nourishes your understanding of the oneness that we are, helps to preserve the fabric of our community or your connection. Some people, when we break silence, will be very easy to speak to. Those that you know, known, those that you like, those that you've been impressed by in some way, may be easy. But there'll be others here. You know, the, your, your, your silent vipassana vendetta. Maybe the one who wants to speak with you the most. Don't forget metta. <laughs> they say that speech which is not friendly is called pisunawada. And pisuna means fiend or demon. And it is speech which is mean-spirited, speech which is malicious or backbiting or slanderous. It is speech that is used to beguile, to deceive, to cheat, to defame, to malign someone else or their reputation. And when we speak in this way, we drive a wedge between two people or two groups. Now, most of us aren't intentionally trying to separate others or trying to destroy or question or threaten the relationship or the connection that others have. But think about it. What is the effect of your speaking about others when they're not present? Years ago, when I was on staff here, each week the staff would get together and we would decide on a, a practice to do that week, an additional practice. And one week we decided that we wouldn't speak about anyone who wasn't present. So if you were with two or three people, you, you could speak about each other or to each other, but you couldn't speak about anybody else who wasn't there. And we all had permission to remind each other of this agreement that we had. Even with this as a practice, with raising our intention and our understanding and attention to it, it was impossible. We could talk for hours before we'd remember. 
wait a minute. The practice this week is not to do, not to do what we're doing. Over the next few days when we, when we begin speaking, if you find yourself speaking about someone when they're not present, ask yourself, could you say to them what you say about them? And if you think you can, try it. After all, this is a place of practice. And nothing like really trying it to see if you're telling yourself the truth. And it's not even if you're saying things that are difficult or challenging or critical. Even when you say something loving and appreciative, even that sometimes is hard to say to someone. Isn't it? For fear of rejection or being misunderstood. When we begin to heighten our attention to speaking about others and really checking out where we're coming from when we do speak about others, we begin to see what the glue of harmony is. It's care. It's really care, respect, uh, and, and, and really precision in speaking, being careful with our words. Another suggestion over the next few days when we begin speaking. Try sometime to be in a conversation without speaking. You know, there'll be two or three of you together or in a room, people talking. Just listen. Watch your impulse. Watch where you're coming from. If you know, I'm not going to speak this time, this hour, this whatever, but just to watch yourself be in a conversation and not participate in that way. You, can, you, you, you have permission to, to watch your motivation, your, where you're coming from. We'll give, it all, we'll, we'll give each other that permission to not speak. Speaking with a, a loving heart. A second condition is to speak gently. A lot of what gets communicated in speaking is not the content of the words. It's the tone, the volume, the posture, the the energy behind it, if you will. No matter how logical the argument is, if it comes with anger, if it comes with shaming or whatever, that's all it's heard. That's all it's felt. That's the, that's the whole message. The logic of it, the, the, the wisdom of it from that point of view, it doesn't get conveyed. When we speak in a harsh way, in an unkind way, in a cruel way, or even in a severe way, with a kind of a a severity or a fierceness or a closeness, then of course we we really uh, isolate ourselves. We cut ourselves off 
from others, from those who are listening. But if we speak in a way, even if what we have to say is difficult, but when we speak in a way that's gentle, from a loving heart, from a caring place, then we create this space of intimacy, an openness to really connect, or an invitation we offer through the gentleness of how we speak, an invitation to others to open their hearts, to, to trust that they won't be hurt by carelessness, cruelty, or uh, mindlessness. Sometimes it is difficult to speak what is maybe seen as being critical or questioning or accusatory. And we all at times have to do that. We have to speak. We have to find out. We have to inquire of others uh, to, 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 to understand how it is with them or how it was with them. And in that inquiry or investigation or it's really important to watch the, the, the tone, the, the, the insistence level, if you will, of the inquiry. When I was in Burma, staying in the monastery, there were a group of um, monks a little younger than I was. They were in their, maybe their mid-30s. And they were selected by Upandita because they were maybe the cream of the crop of the, the monks at that age. Each year when they would have the national exams and when, they would, uh, when the monks would be invited to, to practice, Upandita would keep his eye out for those who were really just really superb, really uh, the, the, the most academically, monastically uh, astute, and those whose practice was most clear, precise, uh, that just had the most foundation under it. And then he would invite them to come and to, to stay at the monastery where he was and to train with him, to learn English, and to really be trained to be the next generation of English-speaking Sayadaws. And so there were 15 or, or 20 of them at times in the monastery, and they lived in one section of the monastery, uh, kind of in their own uh, little dormitories. And uh, occasionally I'd have opportunity to go see them uh, for, for one reason or another, to first to learn how to roll my robes as a monk, and, and then there was a few other things. And they were kind of a, they were an interesting group to me. I was curious about them. And so when I would have the opportunity to go there, I, I would sometimes try to find out about them. Oh, who are you? Where are you from? Who's your roommate? And where's he from? And what's his? They are, they are so skillful at not talking about each other. It's like they would, it's, they wouldn't shut you off or they wouldn't make you feel bad. They just wouldn't answer. And I really got a sense of how precious their community, their sense of community is. And that the, there really is an understanding that the harmony 
in their community, uh, each one takes very personally, you know, understanding that the harmony, the fabric of their community is as fragile as the intention of any one of them, or every one of them. And one careless person, or one careless monk, speaking uncarefully, the whole, the whole community gets kind of um, unharmonious, gets tense, gets, gets shaken up. It was really uh, a pleasure, in a way, to, to be among um, men that age who um, really were quite childlike, open and expressive, but uh, not kind of caught up in kind of the sometimes the adult world of, uh, that we're so familiar with. When I first, uh, a few years ago, when I first wanted to do a talk on right speech, I looked at the rules for monks, the 227 rules, and I looked to see how many rules had to do with speaking, because it's a big part of community life. And there were a lot. There were more rules about speaking than any other topic. And some of the rules were having to do directly with the goal of purity or purifying the mind and understanding. There were 11 of those. There were many that had to do with when, where, and to whom to teach, to share the Dharma. Very precise guidelines of when a monk can speak or teach the Dharma. And there were 26 rules that had to do with speaking that were solely with the intention of preserving the community, solely with preserving the harmony in the community, which is not necessarily samadhi or panya, development of stillness or wisdom, but just so that the community of monks who want to practice full-time towards liberation could live in a supportive community. It was really um, an indication of how important speaking is in our uh, community and in our spiritual life. So speaking with a friendly heart, speaking gently. Third condition for right speech is uh, to speak the truth. After all, our whole practice is really about the truth, coming to the truth of this moment, and deeper truths uh, as we open. The Dharma, the truth, the way things are. Without a, a commitment to speak what we know is true, what are we doing here? It's been easy, easier for you in this retreat because silent most of the time. But I'm sure even in the interviews or the notes or the few times you've had to speak to the staff, you see the tendency at times to exaggerate, to, to kind of expand the truth a little bit, to um, shade the truth a little bit, to, to, so to be seen in a better light, to make your point a little more forcefully, to make something um, a little more dramatic. It's really hard to speak just what you know from your personal experience. The truth. 
That's the truth, what you know from your personal experience. Now, a commitment to honesty, truthfulness, is really essential on this path. And it's said that truthfulness is the one parame that the bodhisattva never broke or never uh, contravened in his whole lifetimes of perfecting his mind in order to become a Buddha. And we can see the power of truthfulness in those who we know have made a commitment to the truth. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, I'm sure there are others, but those are the two that come to my mind. Those who are willing to see the way things are and say it. I did recently see a book, Speaking Truth to Power, a book of... uh, all kinds of social, environmental activists in different countries around the world that see the conditions in their communities, neighborhoods, countries, and speak that truth to those in power. They're powerful, powerful people. Because the truth is real. It's what we stand on. It's who we are in any moment. Sometimes when we first break silence in a retreat, you kind of wonder what to to say to the first person that you meet or turn to. Or or, what do you talk about? Uh, And... You really don't know anything about each other except that they practice. So, talk about practice. How's your practice? How's your retreat? One comment about speaking about your practice. How to say it? Be careful. (laughs) I've seen in my own life, both around practice and other events, that, you know, a whole event, a whole three months or a whole uh, event, whatever it is, can get condensed to two or three phrases, and then it gets, gets condensed down to about three words and then one spin. And if we say that often enough, pretty soon that's all we'll remember. Respect your practice. Respect your efforts, your commitment, your energy. You don't have to tell everybody everything. In fact, in the, in, in the, in the monastery or in the monastic code, There are four rules which, if a monk breaks one of these four rules, they are automatically no longer a monk, and they cannot become a monk again in this life. There's no uh, confession, there's no penance, there's no probation that can overcome the harm that these breaking one of these four rules Uh, involves. 
And it's interesting that one of the rules is about speaking. And the rule is to intentionally mislead another person about your practice. Now think about that. Some of the other rules are like killing and... But to speak about your practice in a misleading way. The Buddha considered that such a severe harm to your own aspirations and to the faith of the listener that it was that grave an offense. And so we should we should we should look at that and say, you know, what happens? What really goes on when I talk about my practice in a kind of inflated way? It's easy to inflate our practice. You know, how's your practice? Great. <laughs> really? Well, It is easy to deceive ourselves. It's easy to deceive others, too. But consider the the damage that you do to your commitment to the truth and to the aspirations of others. And it's really because of the the damage to someone's faith that the Buddha um, had this rule for monks. Ryokan, in speaking of this, says, if you speak delusion, Everything becomes a delusion. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. Followers of the Buddha's way, why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion and truth in the bottom of your own heart. So now now I have to ask you, You've been practicing for at least three months, maybe many years, to realize the truth, the Dharma. Have you made a commitment to always tell the truth? Have you made that commitment? Have you seen the value of your practice grow to, or your your, your commitment to practice and the truth grow to the point where you can make this vow to yourself to always speak the truth. Well, that's that's quite a that's quite a step. That that would be a practice. On the other hand, are you a liar? We don't want to claim that either. So what are we? What, what, where are we on that kind of spectrum? Do we tell the truth when it's convenient? When it's what's expected? When it doesn't ruffle anyone's feathers? When do we tell? What informs when we'll tell the truth and when we'll shade the truth? Something to pay attention to. And to not take lightly the the power of 
deception and uh, the power of a commitment to, to speak the truth. You know the boy, you know the story about the boy who cried wolf? You know, he was the guardian of the, the, the community sheep out on the hillside. And he got bored one afternoon and uh, he says, oh, I'm going to have some fun with those guys, those folks in the village. So he hollers, wolf, wolf. And, uh, you know, as if the wolf was carrying off the, the community sheep. And uh, all the community folk come out and said, where, 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 where? You know, and the boy said, ha, ha, fooled you. Uh, there's no wolf. And they said, oh, hmm. Okay, so they went back home and did their, did their work. And a couple of days later, he got bored again with his practice, with his uh, work. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, wolf, wolf. And oh, all the community come out again to see what's going on. And he said, ah, no wolf, I fooled you. And the next day he was watching the sheep, and here comes this wolf, and he starts lugging off the sheep. And the boy says, wolf, wolf. And all the community people said, he's just fooling us, don't go. They didn't go. Wolf wandered off, with, took off with their sheep. Well, the moral of that story is, when we are conditioned to not expect the truth, when we're, when we're open to deception, op open deception, then the whole community is without protection because you don't know what's true. And so now you just uh, uh, ask yourself, is, is deception or truth conditioned in our culture? Are we conditioned to really expect politicians and Wall Street and the advertising industry and Hollywood to tell the truth? We don't even expect it. We don't demand it. We certainly don't expect it. So what does that make us? Cynical? Uh, you know, alienated? Untrusting? Fearful? Because of a lack of commitment to the truth. Oh, to speak with a loving, friendly, meta-filled heart, to speak gently in a way that the words invite intimacy and connection, to speak the truth. A fourth condition for right speech is to speak that which is beneficial to others. Well, is what we say useful? is what we say beneficial. I mean, the Buddha said, better than a thousand empty, hollow, meaningless words, thousands, is a single word that brings peace, or that points to peace. So much of our talking is out of nervous habit, useless chit-chat, uh, small talk, nonsensical chatter, just filling up the silence. There's a word in Pali for this kind of language. Sampapalapawada. It sounds like useless, frivolous, nonsensical chit-chat. Sampapalapawada. Yeah. 
as I think Kamala said the other day, consider before you speak whether what you say will improve on silence. Now, of course, um, when you first meet someone, as you will here in the next few days, you have to say something. I mean, if you start out with your most intense drama or dharma, uh, that's a little intense. So, of course, you can make some small talk. But watch how much small talk there is in your, in your day. The Buddha, in guiding his monks and nuns and others in what is small talk and what is big talk, or what is useful for the practice, what is edifying for those who practice, and what is unedifying for those who practice, came up with a list. Amazing. <laughs> so the Buddha, he indicated what topics were for monks and nuns unedifying or lowly. Talk of kings, ministers, and politicians. Robbers and criminals. Armies and wars. Dangers. Food. Drink. Clothes. Beds. Garlands. Perfumes. Cosmetics. Jewelry. Relatives. <laughs> Unedifying. Not, to the, not, not directly to the purpose of Peace. Uh, the opposite sex. Uh, heroes, the deceased, villages, towns, cities, countries, street and well gossip, philosophical speculation on being and non-being, random and desultory chat that lacks a definite plan, regularity, purpose, and is not committed to anything. Wow. Okay, so if we eliminate all that... <laughs> Uh, let's see, no TV, no magazines, very little fiction, nothing out of Hollywood. What's left? Well, the Buddha had a list of what's left. Now remember, the goal of the renunciate life is liberation. Freeing the heart, the mind released, whatever. Talk on wanting little. <laughs> Reminds me, a couple years ago when Kamala and I went home from the three-month course, our mail had accumulated while we were home. Over 200 catalogs. Talk about wanting little. I have to get through that. Talk on wanting little. Contentment. Seclusion. Mental seclusion, physical seclusion. The benefit of being aloof from contact, energy, virtue, concentration, understanding, deliverance, the knowledge and vision of deliverance, freedom, the Dharma. How often? Really? How often? You know, you go out for dinner with some friends. You sit down in the restaurant. Okay, I like. I got a topic with her tonight. Uh, how about <laughs> you know uh, any of them? You know, uh, seclusion, contentment. <laughs> 
it just doesn't ring, does it? <laughs> earlier this year, yeah, earlier this year, um, Kamala and I took a period of time, two months, to practice at home. And there were three other teachers that came and stayed uh, on our land with us. And so we, we, we took a period of time to just practice and to take care of the minimal communication things that we had to do. But for the most part, we had several hours of practice a day uh, alone. And then in the evening, we would uh, get together and we would sit. And then we'd spend maybe 15 or 20 minutes just talking about our practice. It is so rich. It's such a support. It's such a... It was what I looked forward to. To really just hear a little bit of how practice is. And it's not that it has to be great. I mean, it can be really difficult as it is. Challenging and tough. But just to share that. Because it, it, it creates an, an understanding, really, that, that others care about your practice. They care. We care about your practice, or you care about each other's practice. I don't need to hear all of it, but that you practice, I care that you practice. That's what you hear when someone inquires how to go today. It's a great support, powerful support. And it's something that, you know, we, wherever you live, however you live, however you work, whatever community you live in, there's someone who practices. Do you care that they practice? Just asking them about that, just sharing that bit with them, really... Um, that's a benefit to them. It really supports what we do. Now, the Dharma is not superficial. It's not chit-chat. It's not casual. It really is beneficial in the deepest way to our life, both immediately and in the long term. The task of a Kalyanamita, or the task of spiritual friend, is to speak about practice in such a way as to encourage, to inform, to inspire, to, to, to lead on, if you will. But sometimes Kalyanamita have to offer words which are difficult to hear. You know? to really point out what is a limiting behavior, what is a limiting understanding to a good spiritual friend. And for that, you really need to be, you know, sensitive and really know that you're coming from a place of caring for that person and speaking in such a way as to invite their intimacy, their reception, and then to really couch what you say in the understanding that it's beneficial. 
useful. The Dharma has tremendous power, tremendous power in the words of the Dharma. I'm sure you hear it, whether in the Dharma talk or hearing someone read from one of the Buddhist suttas. Tremendous understanding, inspiration, just faith can be aroused through sharing the Dharma in that way. In the in the monastic code, the, the guidelines for the guidelines for speaking is to to reflect before speaking whether what you say will lead to harm for you or the other. And if it won't lead to harm, then to say. And reflect while speaking. Is this causing harm to me or another? If it isn't, to continue. And to reflect after speaking. Did this cause any harm? Or was it harmless, blameless? If it was not harmful, then consider your, your, speak, your speaking to be well-spoken speech. If it was harmful in some way, and to make amends. To go back to that person, to acknowledge what it is that caused harm. You didn't tell the truth, you exaggerated, you were a little harsh in the, the energy of speaking. To examine before, during, and after in order to really use speech as practice for creating peace within and peace without. So well-spoken speech is with a friendly heart, gentle, truthful, beneficial. Maybe one of the most difficult conditions to meet or to satisfy in well-spoken speech is to say what you have to say at the right time. And this requires patience. To know when the listener can actually hear what's being said. Not because you got to say it, not because it's urgent, not because it's got uh, a lot of emotional energy behind it, but because now is the time they can actually hear it. If it's coming from a loving heart, it's beneficial, it's truthful, and you speak gently. My teacher Upandita used to say, nothing is accomplished without patience. Nothing. The road to Nibbana is paved with patience. And we learn when the appropriate time is by paying attention, very close attention to when we speak, where we speak, how we speak, and the effect on the listener. Do they actually hear it? Are they in that place of receptivity? If they're not, why bother? It's not easy to forbear the heat of anger or jealousy or the kind of the Insistence of fear or whatever. But it's important to consider you know, what really gets communicated. 
In the same way, you might consider when you speak about the Dharma. A cocktail party is not the place to speak about the Dharma. There may be a lot of inquiry. You know, when you go home, there'll be a lot of people who will ask you, or there may be a lot of people, how's your retreat? You might consider where they're coming from. Casual inquiry? Give them a casual response. Sincere inquiry? Consider what to share. The faith, your confidence, your understanding of the Dharma is really pretty fragile. Here in this group, among these people, doing this practice, it's easy to feel a lot of confidence, a lot of faith, a lot of determination, a lot of trust, a lot of assurance. When you leave here and you're in a community of people that maybe they really don't care, they don't care about sitting, they don't care about your practice, but they still, out of politeness, out of social uh, convention, how's your retreat? What are you going to say? That doesn't damage your faith. You know, you tell somebody about your retreat, and they blow it off like so much insignificance. Or they start badgering you with kind of some other uh, line of rational, logical, or spiritual inquiry, challenging your understanding. Or maybe they just kind of uh, dismiss it as insignificant. That goes into your heart, and that affects your faith and your trust, and your confidence, and your understanding. So be really protect. Protect your faith. Protect your understanding. If somebody really wants to know, they'll ask again. And on the third time, then you might consider that they really want to know. After all, when we speak about the Dharma, we speak about that which is not just out of the books or something you've heard, but it really is trying to put to words what we have come to feel in ourselves. And sometimes it's very subtle. I mean, often it's very subtle. It's hard to put words to faith, trust, inspiration confidence or whatever, aspiration. So protect your, your personal dharma. The way that you share your dharma is a very personal thing. There's an old Eskimo verse about the power of words. In the very earliest time, when both people and animals lived on earth, a 
person could become an animal if he wanted to, and an animal could become a human being. Sometimes they were people, and sometimes animals, and there was no difference. All spoke the same language. That was the time when words were like magic. The human mind had mysterious powers. A word spoken by chance might have strange consequences. It would suddenly come alive. And what people wanted to happen could happen. All you had to do was say it. Nobody can explain this. That's just the way it was. So in a few days we'll enter this new phase of practice, communicating, talking, speaking, sharing. It's a practice. Speaking mindfully is a practice. And like all practices, it might sound simple, but it needs practice. So take the time over these days to really see when it's appropriate to enter the verbal field when it's necessary to withdraw. The Navajo have a useful phrase when they recognize the need to withdraw from contact. And they say, I go now. There's no judgment on who you're leaving or the topic of the conversation or anything else. It's just an acknowledgement that I'm full. I need to withdraw from contact. I go now. So I'd like you to give each other permission in the days of speaking. That if somebody just says, you know, you're talking to somebody and you're really into your thing, you know, and they just say, I go now. <laughs> uh, don't take it personal. Uh, they're full. They can't take it anymore. We'll all understand. So I go now. So let's sit for a moment. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no, or maybe should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. 